Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. For Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. On their return to the top class of Le Mans as a factory team, they only went and won it at the first attempt. Ferrari winning the centenary edition of the 24-hour of Le Mans with their number 51 car, the Ferrari 499P, driven by Alessandro Pierguidi, James Collado and Antonio Giovinazzi. They only went and won the world's greatest motor race, the return to the top class after 50 years, at their first attempt. How did they do that? Well, they started from pole. The, the two, two Ferraris had the top two positions on the grid, the 50 uh, car and the 51 car. And it's their 10th overall triumph. That's 39 races, uh, victories at Le Mans, 29 class wins. And we are joined to discuss that by two of our experts who have been providing all the coverage for you from Le Mans. They've, they're finally back home. Uh, we're joined by Jamie Klein in Tokyo and Gary Watkins, slightly closer to me, somewhere within the M25. Gary, how was your 33rd Le Mans coverage? A great weekend and a great race. Are we going to say it, call it a classic? I guess we have to. Ferrari win. It's a close battle with Toyota. All five of the manufacturers represented in the hypercar class lead the race. Cadillac looked good. Porsche looked good at times. Peugeot's put on a bit of a performance that no one was expecting leading the race. I'm not going to say it was nip and tuck between Ferrari and Toyota because I think Ferrari, for large portions of the race, had a clear edge. I don't know if that's overplaying it or underplaying it, but there were moments of the race when Toyota was coming back at them and and probably things flipped around and Toyota had that edge. Uh, And then at the end of the race, uh, Toyota were coming back. uh, And then I'm sure we're going to talk about this in a minute. And for whatever reason, uh, the comeback uh, didn't happen. But no, it was a classic Le Mans befitting of the centenary running of the, uh, of the event, you know, I think you had you have to say that was it was it one of the great Le Mans of all time times? Well, I'd probably put it up there. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that there I've I've seen a couple of better ones, but anyway, some people will probably uh, 
call call me a party pooper for saying that. And Jamie, welcome back to the podcast. Been a while, actually. Not quite your thirty third year of Le Mans coverage, like Gary. But how was Le Mans for you this year? Yeah, well, for the record, it was my sixth. Um, <laughs> so I had a couple of years away during COVID. So my first was 2016, which was, of course, the Toyota final lap implosion. So uh, this was a, an altogether different uh, a different race with obviously a lot more uh, manufacturers in the fight for the win, although quite nice um, piece of uh, historical symmetry that it was the first overall podium with three different manufacturers since that 2016 race. And I think that does sum up, actually, as Gaz touched upon, how relatively evenly matched it was between all five manufacturers i think it was it was great to see all the manufacturers have their moment in the sun of course there was that contentious bop adjustment in the run-up to the race which we'll also get into more detail about in a while i'm sure um but i think you have to say that yes ferrari did have the quickest car overall um toyota ran them extremely close and i don't think we don't, I don't think we should be too hard on Toyota for coming up short because obviously they were dealt a very bad hand with that BAP change. They still took it almost down to the wire with, you know, just with a handful of hours to go, there was almost nothing to separate the, the 51 Ferrari and the number eight Toyota. So it was a brilliant battle for in the morning hours between those two cars. And I think, I don't think there'll be too many people that will be upset that the Toyota Street came to an end to allow Ferrari to, uh, to get that historic victory. Yeah, so uh, for uh, anyone who is kind of catching up with, you know, Le Mans maybe wasn't glued to it over the weekend, I should run through, I guess, the top 10. The 51 car of the Ferrari, which we've mentioned in the hypercar class, was the winner, and the podium was uh, the number eight Toyota and the number two uh, of Cadillac Racing. Uh, followed home in fourth by the second caddy, uh, the number 50 Ferrari. We'll get into the uh, how the kind of the, the, the cars worked their way out over the course of the 24 hours. Then the two Glickenhouses as well. I, I think they should be really happy, but we'll ask Gary experts um and then the first of the Peugeots which at time at times led the race early on uh, and again I think they should be happy but we'll ask the experts and then the Penske Porsche or the Porsche Penske motorsport car in in ninth place and in 10th at the end of the podcast we will cover off we will offer those congratulations to Inter Europol uh, for the LMP2 victory so I kind of really want to explain Gary the story of this Ferrari 499p of which you've been on top of since the launch they invited you to the launch you spent some time with the engineers with the team we had a great interview on this podcast with you and James Collado the 499p LMH hypercar their first entry into the World Endurance Championship, top flight after 50 years. From the background, I guess, of a lack of Formula One success, but also Formula One budgets, which have gone from a you know, 400 million, I don't know what Ferrari's budget was, it could have been almost infinite, to a more sensible around 150 million a year. A chance to design this car in-house with lots of new elements, new monocoque, a, a three-litre engine, V6 engine, the electric bits, which I'm super nerdy into, a 900-volt system, 200-kilowatt electric motor on that, that front axle. You were there at the launch. Was there an expectation that they could win at their first attempts? How, how do you feel about that engineering side of it? From their point of view, they were always stressing humility that they were going into their first season in the WEC, uh, you know, after this 50-year absence from the top flight, from what I call the old uh, World Sports Car Championship, because there was a long time when there wasn't one. And uh, But obviously, Le Mans always continued and they've been absent from Le Mans. They, they talked about humility and it was almost though as though there was a company crib sheet because 
you know, Antonello Coletta used the word, the uh, Ferdinando Canizzo, the technical uh, guy used the word, various engineers used the word, drivers used used the word. So I think, you know, they were playing down uh, expectations. And I I think they didn't want to be seen to be arrogant, you know, that we're Ferrari, we're coming in, we're going to walk it at at our first first attempt. Uh, But, you know, they they admitted... um, Coletta, the, the the boss of sports car racing there, says, yeah, we're Ferrari. The pressure is on us because, you know, we are the most famous sports car brand in, in the world. So, yes, the pressure was on. Do I believe that they believed that they could go and win it in the first first attempt? I think probably not because that's not the natural order of things, is it? You know, look at Porsche when they, end, they ended a long uh, – absence from 98 to night to 2014 they came with the 919 uh hybrid uh and they didn't you know they weren't a contender in year one they were good but they weren't a contender they went away you know developed the car actually completely redesigned it came back in 2015 and and won the race so you know i don't think you you should look at a manufacturer just because it's ferrari and say yeah they're go- they're going to be a contender but of course yeah things changed in the week before the Le Mans test day. So sort of 10 days before, before the race. And then suddenly the balance shifted. We'd seen Ferrari, you know, consistently on the podium every time uh, in the WEC leading up to Le Mans, the three rounds there on the podium, they had a pole, they had another pole that they lost because of track limits in infringement. So they were clearly there or thereabouts, but did, did they look like potential winners 10 days before the race? I would say no. And I'm sure, you know, in all the meetings, the engineering debriefs and whatever, they were probably saying, no, we're not going to win this race. But then obviously there was, there was a change in the balance of performance and suddenly the balance changed. And then we, we saw it in the race when they were the quickest car, the 499P was the quickest car, but you know, it wasn't just the BOP and that's, you know, I'm sure after Jamie says a word, we can, we can talk about that. The aerodynamic design, Jamie, took advantage of the hypercar regulations designed to put cars in a performance window rather than regulators saying, you know, you can put bits of bodywork here, you can't put bits of bodywork there. That's why we saw so many different interpretations, either Peugeot using ground effect and no no big rear wing. In terms of cooling and aerodynamics, we see, I, I thought the car, well, maybe, maybe this isn't, it's by the by. It looked beautiful, and it looked like a Ferrari, but it looked very sophisticated. Uh, that front wing, the kind of side pods, the rear wing, it all looked like a really, such a well-designed car. And obviously, and sometimes fast cars are, are, are butt ugly, but more often than not, the old cliche goes, fast cars tend to look pretty good as, as, as well. But Ferrari did expect a difficult first year coming back, as, as Gary says, and, and didn't expect to win I mean, what are your thoughts on how you, you've you've seen it this year? Because it, it has acquitted itself well up until Le Mans, even if it hasn't had the outright results. I think Gaz makes a very good point that it's not normal for manufacturers, even of the stature of Ferrari, to rock up in year one and win it. I mean, another good example is Toyota, of course, that you know we think of Toyota as being the dominant force. But when they came back in 2012, you know they were not on the pace of Audi, which was the sort of incumbent at the time. So took them several years to get into a position where they were good enough to win it. So I think on the evidence of the WEC, the first three races, you would have said that Ferrari was clearly the, the second best car. 
Um, and one thing we haven't talked about so much is the, the the sort of speed over a single lap versus speed over a stint. And it seems that Ferrari had the speed over a single lap, but less over a stint. I think there are also question marks over its ability to sort of make all the right strategic decisions. We saw that Spa, arguably they dropped the ball by uh, by, by starting the race on wets when it was already clearly going to dry. Um, they seem to have trouble warming their tyres up. That was negated somewhat by the the tyre warmers being brought back for one race only. That was another very contentious change pre-race. So I think they went into it as the second favourite, but then probably the BOP change, I would argue, probably made them co-favourite. Now, of course, the Ferrari did get some weight added on as well, 24 kilos versus 37 for Toyota, but... Toyota believe that cost them 1.2 seconds a lap. We never really heard from Ferrari exactly what they felt they were missing, but clearly they were penalised by less than that. And I think when you consider the margins between the two manufacturers come the race, it probably did have a significant bearing on the race. So I think the other thing we should mention as well is that Ferrari did amazingly well to have so few reliability dramas. I mean, James Clarder and Antonio Giovinazzi both said in the post-race press conference, we genuinely were not sure we were going to get through it without dramas. The 51 car more or less did, except two late uh, power cycles during pit stops, the first of which I think that the Ferrari at the time had a, a, an advantage of about one minute that was reduced to basically nothing, which was when we got those really exciting laps with the two cars practically running nose to tail. And then a second one later on, but by that stage, unfortunately, Toyota driver Rio Hirakawa had kind of dropped the ball, lost it at Arnage, Toyota did amazingly well to turn that car around in only two minutes without going into the garage. So the damage obviously wasn't too significant, but that was the moment at which the pendulum definitively swung in the direction of Ferrari, let's say. Let's get into three possible outcomes. And, it, and I, you know, I, I know the answer to this already, that it's not black and white. But let, let me play the podcast host for a moment. Did Ferrari win Le Mans? Did Toyota lose Le Mans or the third option were Ferrari handed Le Mans so like the first one did Ferrari win Le Mans well let's talk about how they put that package together Ferrari know how to go racing it's one of my biggest frustrations with Ferrari in Formula One like that oh man it's just all there waiting to be unlocked did they lose Le Mans well you've mentioned already the Toyota was right up there until a driver error and Rio Hirakawa binned it and lost it for Toyota. Or were they handed it? You've both mentioned balance and performance and uh, the, 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 the rule makers playing God just a week before the race, throwing everything up in the air. And as our, uh, we made a little video, uh, Jamie, myself and Gary made a little video with Anthony Davidson. About 100,000 people have watched it on our YouTube channel, which I shouldn't be surprised because over 300,000 people were at Le Mans. But I was just really nice to see that video did really, really well where Ant was saying, yeah, but isn't that the point of balance of performance? Not to do it from some algorithm before the season starts and then lock it. And okay, so that you've got a thing about sandbagging and stuff like that and people going slowly until Le Mans. I get all that. But like, isn't that the point of balance of performance? It's a moving target. So let's get into all of that. You know what? Let's start with the positive one, though. Did Ferrari win Le Mans? What do you think are the key things that Ferrari did with this team to take the victory? And also, if you can explain to our listeners how much of a Ferrari team this is, because we've seen over the years at Le Mans manufacturer teams that do it all themselves, manufacturer teams that, let's face it, 
have written the big check and somebody else ran the car for them. And we've seen customer teams, obviously. How much of this was pure Ferrari, if you like? Was it a, a pure factory team? What are the key things you think that they did to go and win it? Let's just quickly cover off the team. It, the, the team is the sort of infrastructure, if you like, is pro- provided by AF Corsa, who are Ferrari's long-term partner in GT racing, going back to the noughties, actually. But obviously, you know, to say it's AF Corsa, it's not Ferrari handing over a car to AF Corsa to run. You know, it's 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 much more uh, of a sort of embedded grouping with, you know, Ferrari personnel and AF Corsa personnel. So, you know, it's a bit like at the end uh, of the Audi program with Yerst Racing sort of being the team running the car and Audi you know, supplying the car. The cars are so complex that you look in the pit and you say, well, I know he works for Audi and I know he works for Yurst, but it's just, there's just so many uh, engineers involved in that. So this is, this is a proper works team. Make, make no mistake about that. But, you know, you need mechanics to change wheels and stuff like that. So, you know, the, the engineering is very much Ferrari, you know, all, all the technical support. Why did they win Le Mans? Well, they built a quick car and they built a reliable car. And they've always said priority number one was to have a reliable car. That was the focus of their testing from the time they first ran at Fiorano. Of course, it's a new Ferrari. And that was back at the start of July. So reliability was always the number one priority. And you have to say, you look at the uh, opening three races and they only really had one significant uh, technical error uh, which was a, a break by wire problem at, at Portimao. So they turned up at Le Mans with a car that looked good, but of course that's good over eight hours at Sebring or six hours at Portimao and Spa. So, you know, clearly there's a difference there. But they did have a reliable car. They just had electronic glitches twice on the uh, winning car, once on the other car, which lost its time through uh, a punctured radiator for the hybrid system. You know, hybrid systems get hot, has its own radiator. It was punctured by a stone that went went through the grill and into the into the radiator. So yes, they had a reliable car. They had a quick car, and we, as as Jamie said, we know it was quick over one lap from. Antonio Fiocco's uh, sensational pole on debut at Sebring. Obviously, what it didn't have at the opening three races was sort of pace over a stint. You know, it wasn't a match for the Toyota there on its tyres and, you know, double stinting. And then at Le Mans, triple stinting is very much part of the game. But that changed at Le Mans. And part of the reason it changed at Le Mans and we always knew it was going to change at Le Mans, is that Le Mans is not a high-energy circuit. Think about it. It's eight and a half miles with, you would say, four long straights. So in terms of the percentage of corners on the track, it's quite low. So tyre deg is not a big issue. And I think that's a major, major factor in their victory and in the in the sort of the shift from the opening three races to Le Mans. Yes, the BOP chain played a part, but so did the nature of Le Mans in that the, the weakness of the car at the earlier races was sort of masked by the, the track, if, if you like. So I think that that is absolutely crucial. Now, if you want to go and say, well, how much, how much of it was BOP and how much was it the car, <laughs> the, the sort of the car not having this tire deg problem that it had earlier? Well, I couldn't tell you. It's interesting that Toyota put the BOP change or rather the differential 
in the change between them and Ferrari, which was 37 kilos for Toyota, 24 for Ferrari. Those 13 kilos cost Toyota two and a half minutes over the course of the race. That's what they say. Obviously, two and a half minutes is what they say it cost them. The the margin of victory for Ferrari was one minute 21. Uh, so, you know, we could argue this to the cows come home. But yeah, there are lots of factors involved. And it wasn't just the BOP. Definitely not. All right, we'll just hang on there a second. We'll take a quick break. And a, worth a reminder, by the way, that I shamelessly stole the title of this podcast from one of Gary Watkins' articles in the Autosport Plus section of the website, How Ferrari Scored an Historic Victory at Le Mans. An excellent piece, one of our long reads written by Gary. But the Plus section on the Autosport website is where we save a lot of our long reads, our analysis for our subscribers. And you can be one of those by going to autosport.com slash Plus, and finding out more details. Stick around. Back in a sec. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, back to the podcast. What do you think about the driver lineups they went and secured in the 50 car? Antonio Fuoco, Miguel Molina, and Nicholas Nielsen in the winning car. Alessandro Pierre Guidi, who did uh, a mega job, by the way. James Collado. Look, they, they all did. Antonio Giovinazzi, a, uh, a well known Ferrari factory driver who had his time in, in Formula One and arguably has reached. In, you know, much bigger heights now that he's a Le Mans winner. What do you think about the the driver lineups they put together versus the other driver lineups we saw at Le Mans? And 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 any other of your thoughts on how you think Ferrari won it? Well, funny you mentioned that because I was actually itching to say Alessandro Pierguidi drove amazingly, and we've seen him perform you know in a GT car time and time again. You know, WEC. Spa 24 hours, you know, uh, Blanc Pan slash GT World Challenge Europe. He's, you know, he's always been very solid. I know. Very solid. Come on, come on. Be. I want you to be more effusive than that. He, he's 39 now and we've seen some amazing performances in GT cars. You know, you mentioned Spa 24 hours. Uh, we should also mention, you know, various performances in the WEC uh, in the last few years. And it's almost as though he's get, getting better and better. I was quite embarrassed, actually, in the Autosport Top 50. One year I wrote, this guy's getting better and better as he gets into his late 30s. And then I had to write it again the next year because I thought he was even getting even better and better. Well, I was going to say that actually I do recall a year when Pig Weedy was 10th or knocking on the door of the top 10 in the top 50, um, which just goes to show how good he is. Uh, and during that nighttime shower, the second of two showers that really sort of, you know, mix things up, especially in hypercar, probably more in the classes, just on the basis of how many people shunted it. But in hypercar, it was more about people pulling away. 
And Pierre Guidi was putting like five to 10 seconds a lap on everybody during this phase of the race. And I think that's actually quite important because when he did unfortunately make the one mistake, or I would say one of two serious mistakes that a Ferrari driver made all race, which was when he put it in the gravel at the first Mulsanne chicane, trying to avoid another incident that had already taken place there. On a, I think that was on a drying track, if I remember correctly. He stayed on the lead lap. The car didn't go off the lead lap because he'd built such a commanding lead. He could afford, as the you know the marshals did, that some yeah you, know, you could say the marshals maybe worked uh, extra hard to get the Ferrari out of the gravel quickly. <laughs> <laughs> was he pushed um, or, or lifted out of the gravel? Because it was it seemed quick. He was lifted. Yeah, that which is the the sort of Duriger way of doing it now. I think. You know, these cars are, they don't like being dragged one way or the other, do they? So, uh, so I think there's the onus is on to lift them, which, which of course does take more time. And we saw that mm. with Peugeot, who, who uh, managed to lose two laps, uh, early in the race when Jean-Eric Verne, uh, won. And you, you might have thought, uh, Peugeot would have, would have had a speedier pull out by the marshals than, uh, Ferrari, but there you go. Yeah, so um, so yeah, Piguidi, he built the advantage. He didn't go off the lead lap when he went off. And then from that point, it was obviously that car was quick enough to get back into the lead by, by a full minute by the time they had the first of the power cycles that we mentioned earlier. On the other car, Antonio Fuoco, amazing. His hyperpole lap was sensational. He's always been a talent in junior single-seater racing. I think this is the kind of performance that makes it go well. Did Ferrari, of course, he's done a lot of simulator work in F1 for Ferrari. Did they pass him up a bit too soon as far as supporting up the single-seater ladder was concerned? So, Foco, brilliant. Nicholas Nielsen as well, who did have an offer at the Porsche Curbs, but very, very quick. Always been another mega talent who dropped off the single-seater ladder far too early. I think, I'm not even sure he got as far as Formula 3 before the cash dried up, but he went straight to Ferrari Challenge, I think, um, won the title. And he's just been on the up and up since then. So, I'd actually say the 50 car probably had on pure speed a better lineup but unfortunately they had the radiator problem if i could just interrupt if you look at the averages you know fuoco is firmly nailed on at the top you know he was the quickest of the six no doubt about that yeah so i think the 50 car probably could have won it by a more comfortable margin potentially if they didn't have the radiator issue i think you've got to say considering the speed of the car plus the fact that they didn't have the power cycle issues at the 51 car one they had one early in the race actually okay. which would have been negated of course because it was early in the race and therefore right. they had the safety cars so uh so it would have yeah. been less less of an issue worth mentioning that there was no interruption after the the i think it was the 19th hour the first of the two 51 car power cycles happened and then there was no safety car or anything like that to close up the pack from that point onwards. So they did lose the minute completely. A couple of things I'll, I'll pick up on there because I, I know that I'm going to miss things on this podcast. So apologies, you know, hardcore listeners. I think he didn't mention that, but uh, I'm, I'm doing my best. A couple of things I want to get to. The rain, how that mixed things up and how Ferrari persevered through that and how versus their competition. Also, you've both mentioned power cycles. To explain that, it, it is basically turn it off and on again. Absolutely. That leads me on to how they won it, still being, you know, positive about Ferrari. I'd like to also talk a little bit about just what a, a complete outfit they were. Now, on the Formula One podcast that we do, I have been critical over recent years of Ferrari's pit wall. By the way, saw Charles Leclerc there. Uh, we saw Frederick Vasseur there uh, on, on the grid. Big Formula One contingent turned up to support their colleagues in, uh, in Le Mans. In F1, Ferrari have at times been a little bit headless chicken, and I think that is largely sorted now. But they made some terrible strategy calls. And yet here, when the car, we, we, we saw they do the stop, 
not sure it was a driver change or not. The, it was, the, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think it was and, to take weedy. And the car doesn't move, but everything seemed calm, controlled. They just followed the procedure. I would suspect that in testing that they've had to do that innumerable times and it but it is worth pointing out that the first time it happened they lost a minute the second time it happened they lost uh significantly less i think it was 30 something or around just less than 40 so they were sort of on top of it but yeah i can't believe that they haven't been doing power cycles you know through testing because we see it all the time with these highly complex hybrid machinery you know just think about a couple of years ago uh kamui Kobayashi sort of parked underneath the the uh, banking uh, between the second Lesmo and the uh, Ascari chicane doing uh, a reboot there. I don't know if he wanted a bit of shade or something, and that's why he stopped there. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that was it. just sort of an image that I, I remember. So yeah, we see it with these cars all the time because they're just very complex things. And yeah, and, and it is absolutely what you say. Yeah. But, but no, you know, and let's not forget AF Corsa are a finely tuned endurance racing team with a lot of success. Okay, they've moved up to the front of the field. And so there's a slightly different dynamic there in the way you're dealing with safety cars, traffic and that, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget the skills uh, and the success of AF Corsa over the years. But that's not to say, as, as Jamie mentioned earlier, you know, we, we, have we seen some ta- tactical errors, uh, strategic errors from Ferrari this year? Well, I'm not, I don't, the Spa one is, is, is interesting because Toyota started on, uh, on slicks on the, on the soft tire that can sort of act as a sort of semi intermediate, uh, if you like, they're, they're Michelins as everyone's on Michelins. Whereas Ferrari started on the wets, the, clearly the, the, uh, the slick was the right call. Toyota built a big lead. And that was, that was crucial in their victory. But Ferrari set up their car for the end of the race. And when they were flying, of course, James Collado came back, gained, I think, you know, gained 50 seconds in a stint on the, the Porsche, uh, driven by, uh, Frederick Machiavelli to take, uh, third spot on the final, final lap. So, so it's quite hard to judge there. It's, it's quite hard to say that that is, was a strategic mistake. Uh, but if you go back to Sebring, there were definitely some strategic mistakes. Uh, but you know they're on top of those. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't. I I couldn't say. I couldn't look at what happened at Le Mans and say, "Well, you should have done that. You should have done this." You know, it it looked pretty flawless strategically for me. You could say even Toyota made. It, in the end, it didn't really make much of a difference. But arguably, Toyota made a strategic error um when they were trying to get from wets to dries and they they didn't manage to complete the pit stop before the pits closed for the start of the uh the, the drop back and the and the wave around which are new innovations for this year in the safety car procedure they were kind of caught out there it didn't it, it set them back but i think because we had another rain shower that kind of reset everything it didn't ultimately cost them too much but it cost them nothing thought, cost them nothing yeah, i would it, say Indeed, yeah. But just at the time, it it felt like, why didn't Toyota get at least one of its cars in the pits just to cover it off? Because, you know, Ferrari got both cars in. I think Porsche got a car in, or I think it was the Jota car, wasn't it, that, that, that then led for a bit. Um, Cadillac got a car in. So it just felt like they'd, they'd missed, a, uh, you know, missed, a, missed a beat there. But but yeah, as Gaz said, we know AF Corsa from years of watching them in the GT Pro, um, you know, battling against, you know, Porsche, Corvette and, and Aston Martin uh, in previous years. We know how good they are. And of course, it was a lot more pressure, a lot more 
you know, Ferrari big wigs in attendance, not only Charles Leclerc, but, you know, you, you have Frederick Vasseur from the F1 team was there. John Elkin was there. Um, so for them to handle the, that pressure as well as they did, I think is a huge, you know, just a huge testament to the, to the job they did. And combined with the speed of the car, I mean, it, it was it was there for the taking for them, basically. And I think, you know, you, you can only take your hat off to the fact that they, they actually executed the race pretty much to perfection. A lot of incidents with those different rain spells, both in the in the day and the night. Any thoughts, Gary, on how Ferrari won it with the rain when it arrived? Well, ultimately, because the sort of race was reset after the rain, it wasn't a major factor in the race. But one thing I would say is that Ferrari drivers went off in the rain and Toyota drivers didn't. You know, Piguidi had his uh, had his spin at the first chicane on the Mulsanne, as yeah. Jamie said. Yeah. You know, he, he stayed on the same lap and then there was a safety car uh, straight afterwards. So it was, it had absolutely no effect on the race uh nicholas nielsen had earlier gone off at the porsche curves uh so yes actually the drivers did make mistakes but 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 they weren't significant unless of course nielsen's trip through the gravel resulted in the uh in the stone piercing the um the the hybrid uh radiator so actually they sort of yes they did deal with the rain well because their drivers were quick but they did make mistakes but ultimately they didn't it didn't cost them anything now, let's turn the tables a little bit and ask, well, yeah, Ferrari won Le Mans, but did Toyota lose Le Mans? No doubt about it. Jamie mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, 2016, leading for 23 hours, 55 minutes. Uh, 2016 was, uh, if it wasn't for the Porsche win, as the, the record books say, would have been a, a Toyota win. But then from 2018, just dominance. And yeah, you can say, well, yeah, at the end of 2017, uh, you know, Porsche and Audi departing, so it's it's sometimes who you race against. Yeah, all of that. But Toyota dominance. But the 2023 season, Toyota dominance. They just, they are, they are so, so good. And yet, this time round, there were things that happened which did make Ferrari's life a little bit easier. So yes, Ferrari won it. The competition made mistakes this year. Yeah, well, I think I think it's important to say, realistically, I think only Toyota had the pace to go with Ferrari. I'm sure we're going to talk about Cadillac, Porsche, um, Peugeot, and the and the garageists, um, uh, as we like to call them here, in a little bit. But focusing purely on Toyota, now I think a lot of people will point to Rio Hirakawa's error um, with around two hours left and say, ah, well, they lost two minutes in that process plus the time lost in the spin, um, and they went on to lose by you know a minute and twenty. So therefore, Hirakawa threw it away for them. However, I think that's a bit harsh. Personally, I did speak to, to Rio uh, after the race. I, I know him quite well from covering Super GT and Super Formula. He's had his fair share of heartbreaks in the past in Japan. Of course, he was part of the winning effort last year. I think did a, did a great job then uh, coming in to replace Kazuki Nakajima. And he was, uh, you wouldn't say he was right on the pace of his teammates, but he was very close, closer than Nakajima had been. I just feel so sorry for him this year because his first stint was in terrible conditions that was I think that was the first rain shower second stint was ruined by running over a squirrel which damaged the the front uh, nose and he he had a lead of about 12 seconds at this stage which was then reduced to nothing and then of course he was in the car for the crucial final couple of hours with just unimaginable pressure I think he was about 16 seconds behind the Ferrari at the time he'd taken over from Brendan Hartley who'd done a 
amazing job to to keep the Ferrari, you know, within Toyota's sights. So, you know, a, a, another amazing performance from the Kiwi. But Hirakawa, here, uh, sorry, Hartley had, had uh, so, so I heard Hartley had turned the brake balance quite far to the rear, quite aggressive in, in his bid to keep the Ferrari in sight. Hirakawa was just caught out by this, didn't manage to make the, the brake balance change that he needed in time with the, all the pressure going on. You know, these cars are incredibly complicated, of course, these days. And he, he just got to the exit Indianapolis. And, and when he braked for Arnage, the, the, the rears locked and he went into the wall. And it's just one of those things. It was, the, the, you know, his teammates were very keen to defend him post-race. And I think rightly so, because it's just one of those things in the pressure uh, that could have happened to anybody. And, you know, I did ask him, well, do you think that mistake was was the decisive thing in the end? And he said, well... We weren't to know that the Ferrari was going to have another power cycle, and if we had known, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I would have taken it a little bit easier, but they, there's no way they could have foreseen that. So Hirakawa was instructed to give it absolutely everything, and he made a small mistake at a corner where we saw, well, actually the following corner, but at a part of the track where we saw loads of drivers go off over the course of the race. And he was fighting for the overall win with the pressure that goes with it. So yes, it was uh, a factor, but I don't think you can you can say that that was the, the 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 main reason they lost. I think you'd have to go back to the BOP change and say again, well, it cost them a lot of time over the course of the race. Two minutes thirty, as as Gaz earlier mentioned. Also, the tire warmer thing. I mean, speaking to Rob Loipen, the, the director of uh, the of the Toyota team, he was he actually was keen to point out that both those changes have been made at the last minute against of course the bot change against the wishes to Toyota but Toyota seemed to be uh, handling the non-tire warmer life a lot better than a lot of its rivals and I don't think they were very pleased to see them come back at such short notice in terms of from a safety aspect yes but from a sort of competition aspect no so I think those that has a lot more bearing on it and I think you've got to say that they did well to 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 push Ferrari as hard as they did in the end with 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 those handicaps in mind. I don't actually think the tyre warmer thing was an issue because of the high temperatures. You know, it was nigh on 30 degrees during the day, wasn't particularly cold at night. I, I actually don't think the the tyre warmer issue played a factor here. You know, maybe maybe Toyota would dis- disagree with me, but, I, you know, because of the high temperatures, I, I don't think it was was a factor. And, and But I agree with you, you know, that it with Rio, you, you you know he had to push. Hartley had been closing down on, on the Ferrari. You know it just looked like as it was getting hotter. The the Toyota was sort of coming in, coming into the window. That's not actually not the right thing. Just the the the, the balance was shifting, and it looked like it was that tiny gap, that tiny deficit it had to the to the uh, Ferrari was being overcome. You know, and on the stint before, Hartley got a new set of tyres and he extended from a triple to a quadruple, not on one set of tyres, but he, he then got a new set of tyres for the fourth bit of the quadruple. You know, he came back at the Ferrari, you know, took a handful of seconds out of it and got it down to nine seconds. They actually, the car actually lost a handful of seconds in the sort of pit stop cycle that followed. And that's why, as Jamie said, the the gap was around 15, 16 seconds when Hirokawa went off. But, you know, he had to be in maximum attack mode there because that was their only chance. They had to put Ferrari under pressure. You know, there's you can't say, oh, let's hope they have, they have another electronic glitch and they have to lose 30, 40 seconds in the pits doing a re- power cycle. You know, you, mm. can't, you can't go racing that way. Let's sort of 
go into the realms of the hypothetical here, had Hirokawa not gone off and there was that 40 seconds, 40 seconds loss for the, uh, for the Ferrari. So then suddenly that 16 second deficit for the Toyota turns into a, uh, what, 25 second advantage for the Ferrari. Well, then we would really had a race on our hands and we'd have seen who was the quickest in those hot, hot conditions would Ferrari have had the edge that it had earlier and been able to sort of creep back and challenge or would the Ferrari have been sorry or would the Toyota have been the dominant car and been able to hold that gap or extend it we'll never know unfortunately it's also worth I I did actually ask Vasslon during his slot after race was there any consideration to keep Hartley in the car considering how quickly he was going but apparently they stuck to the plan they'd always had throughout the race I did ask Hirakawa, well, you obviously knew you were going to be in the car for the final two hours. So how how did you deal with the build-up to that? And he just said, well, it was just an, un- an unbelievable amount of pressure. And I and I just think if, he had, if he'd been 25 seconds ahead with the Ferrari maybe closing, arguably it's even more pressure if you're the leader and you've got everything to lose. I'm not saying that he would have necessarily, you know, thrown it off the road. But, you know, it's again, it's like we, we can't possibly know what would happen in that situation. You know, it, it would have been huge pressure. I think the Ferrari probably would have, you know, because they would have been in the position of having to attack in that case. So I think we can say probably the gap would have come down and then, well, then we just don't, we just can't know how it would have ended. What we also have to say is that Hartley couldn't stay in the car because he'd done a, he'd done a quadruple. Obviously it's a four hour maximum. As Vasselon said, they stuck to the script, you know, the, the sort of, the sort of stint order that they work out before the race. And traditionally Toyota finishes with its Japanese drivers, you know, think back to 16 and Nakajima being in the car when it loses power with, with six minutes to go. He, he would have known probably, he, he would have known the moment he got out of the car last year that he would be in the car, that car last this year. So he's a quick driver and he's a good driver. So, you know, I, you, I wouldn't say that's a mistake on Toyota's part. Okay. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about how Ferrari won or, Maybe we're handed the race at Le Mans this year. Stick around back in a second. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, back to the podcast. Now, as part of the uh, research for the podcast, I thought I'd better pull some quotes from various people. If I was going to ask the question, did Toyota lose Le Mans? I thought I'd better have a look at who said what afterwards. And Pascal Vasselon, uh, Toyota's team technical director, uh, said of the incident with the squirrel, uh, there have been windows where we are dominating Ferrari. 
There is a logic behind that. Just after one of these moments there where we were competitive, uh, Rio hit a squirrel, probably not a very small one because it's done big damage to the front end. Thoughts, of course, with the squirrel. I had a look at the uh, the press release that dropped in to the, my inbox from Toyota Gazoo Racing as well to see what the tone of it was. It was very good. And one of the things that I've not said yet is in other forms of racing where... People celebrate their competitors having issues. I think, Gary, you mentioned in one of our previous podcasts, maybe in in 16, there was a cutaway shot of, it was either the Porsche garage or something, and you said that people were being quietened down. What was that we talked about? Oh, yeah, that was 16. So as we were just talking about two minutes ago, Nakajima suddenly slows on the penultimate lap. And it was Yanni in the Porsche, uh, if I'm correct, and Dumas and, uh, sorry, Roman Dumas and Mark Lee were in the pits. And suddenly, you know, they were looking at each other. What's happening? What's happening? Mm. The Toyota's in trouble. We're going to win. And they were sort of jumping up and down and sort of hugging. I think they might have been even rolling on the floor. And I, I think some Porsche bigwig sort of came came up to them and said, mm, you know, just play it a bit cooler, boys. You know, that you don't yeah. want to be seen to be cele- celebrating someone else's misfortune. And I think that there's a lot of that at Le Mans is, you know, people say, yeah, well, gutting for them. Yeah. Perhaps people say it, but don't mean it. <laughs> but I don't. Know. Well, I, 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 there was a cutaway shot when Hirokara went off in the Toyota. There was a, they did a, a quick cutaway to the Ferrari garage, and there was a couple of people who put their hand over their mouth. Some people looked, you know, generally like, oh, sort of, obviously, you know, they're benefiting. But there was no one in the Ferrari garage jumping around. Uh, celebrating Toyota's misfortune. So I thought it was, it was classy, classy. Classy, but also the the closer the race, the better the race, the more meaningful the victory. Uh, absolutely, yes. you know, sporting success is all about who you beat. Yeah, I always like to talk about boxing and, you know, the sort of the former Ali Fraser era. And that's why uh, Muhammad Ali is, is, is rated as one of the all-time great heavyweight boxers is because of who he beat. You know, put that into a uh, motor racing context. Prost, Senna, PK rivalry, you know, is very important. And I think Michael Schumacher, his legacy is diminished because he didn't have a big rival in the same way. Uh, I'm a big Mick Hackman fan, so I do take a bit of issue. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm not... Not Not for the whole of his career, I'll I'll grant you. Toyota's tone afterwards, I thought, was uh, congratulatory to Ferrari, but they did... The the official press release that came out pretty shortly afterwards pointed out that last year's winners, Buemi Hartley Hirakara, saw off all competitors, bar one, so rather than saying we came home second, they said we saw off everybody apart from one, having to admit, uh, because you can't bend the truth. After 24 hours, relentless hours of racing, finishing just one minute, 21 seconds behind the winning Ferrari. Our victory hopes were dashed by an accident through no faults of their own. And the, you know, they go into pointing out how it wasn't Kobayashi's fault or anything. He was entering a slow zone and it was two lapped cars that had nothing to do with him that uh, that caused all the the, the the damage and so i thought it was it was it was probably about what i would do if i were toyota to say hey look we could have won that and there were things out of our control but of course they didn't mention balance of performance as gary's pointed out it's uh, they can't which i didn't realize that was a i love learning new things they can't. Well, they do on balance, but they sort of well, they sort of tip, tippy toe around yeah. it. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they framed it as an adjustment outside of the BAP rules, so therefore 
they could talk about it. Well, if the organisers just drop a new BOP on us, we can say whatever we want. Because well, that, that, that I, I think I would have taken that view. I think, yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, but we can talk. We can say anything we want, and we can yeah, talk no about it. Uh, so, uh, so that's my third. My third possible question on the podcast is: Were Ferrari? handed the win you've both mentioned it uh, you know a couple of times before let's get let's get properly into it we, we know the weight changes now the increase toyota got more ferrari got more but 13 kilograms difference between the the, the, the penalty oh can i call it a pe- yes it is a penalty that 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 toyota were given correction actually is is yes. the, the word that the aco and the fia used a correction uh, not, not, not a change not a penalty uh, not a tweak wonder- not a revision a correction a correct I wonder how many lawyers signed that word off. <laughs> because it implies they got it wrong, doesn't it, at the start of the season? Well, yeah, yeah I absolutely. Thought of that. yeah, that's a good yeah. point. That's a good point. So, yeah, rulemakers shuffled the pack a week before, and Ferrari uh, found that they benefited significantly. We've kind of answered it as we've gone through, but final thoughts, Gary, on my question, were Ferrari handed the race win? What do you think? Oh, I'm going to sit on the fence. Yes, they were handed. (laughs) Yes, they were handed um, a chunk of time. Toyota themselves never put a figure on how much that uh, 37 kilo hit cost them and the 13 kilo differential between what they got and what Ferrari got under the BOP change. Kobayashi tweeted 1.2 seconds, which I suspect he, 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 he plucked from the air, even though he is okay. team, team uh, principal. We never sort of really got any firm indication. Going back to those two and a half minutes that Vassalon talked about, that was their calculation, estimation, guesstimation. I don't know. Uh, I said, well, that mu- that must have been very hard to to say that because you know you you had multiple safety cars, all the slow zones, five four course yellows, which was a new thing at Le Mans this year. We'd never had four course yellows at Le Mans. We see them in the WEC. We've seen them since 2016, but they're actually used in the race at Le Mans for the first time. They tried them in. Uh, free practice in the past so it's I, I don't know how you how you calculate that they must they must have a very big computer and some very clever pe- people but so I'm going to go back to what I said before about tyre deck I think that was absolutely key to their victory now if we take out the BOP adjustment we obviously still have Ferrari and Toyota at the top winning and everyone else further behind we wouldn't have seen a Cadillac one lap down and second Cadillac, two laps down, I think, you know, that gap would have been bigger had there been no BOP adjustment. But in terms of the balance between Ferrari and Toyota, had there been no BOP adjustment, it would have been closer than at Spa, Portimao and Sebring. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Because of because of the nature of the circuit. We have to mention the other manufacturers as part of this uh, assessment, because of course, Cadillac and uh, and Porsche were were also penalised, but just to a much lesser extent. And the Peugeot wasn't given anything, so Peugeot was the one of the five big manufacturers that that gained the most because they 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 were not given any increase in weight. So I think you have to say that you know you could you could almost say well one of those should have you know stepped up, but they were just too far back to begin with. You know, as Gaz said, it brought them back into the a window where they could vaguely challenge, but only if everything went perfectly for them and things went wrong um, for the other two, which obviously they did because they both won. Toyota lost a car. Ferrari had a, a significant delay 
with one of its cars that that meant that it finished uh, behind two Cadillacs. So, mm-hmm. you know, Cadillac was the was the sort of the if you like the 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 reliable or the most reliable in the sense they got all their cars home. Um, but yeah, but to go back to the question, were Ferrari handed it? Well, I asked Pascal Vassalon after, do you think the organisers got the result that they wanted? And he just, I think, I think he pretended to misinterpret the question because I think his, resp- <laughs> his response was something like, uh, we all wanted to win the race, which was, yeah, which was not what I asked. But uh, I think, I think he chose to, to misinterpret it. Um, so, so there, so, it's it's easy to say well it's the centenary race and you know it's a, it would be a great story if ferrari won it ferrari did win it it was a great story but i think the bop change was again we don't know for sure because we we we, we can't we don't know the internal workings of the aco and what was discussed internally when they made this decision but i i would guess that they were just fearful that of another toyota romp which is not what anybody would have wanted to see. So I think in the end, you have to say that that given how close the two leading cars from Ferrari and Toyota were, I think they got it almost right. Maybe they'd swung it a little bit far in favour of Ferrari, but I think I'd, I think we got a much better race than we would have had with no BOP adjustment. Put it that uh, way. Well, I think we have yeah. to say that, you know, and, 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 and I have absolutely no doubt is that was why the change was made and my understanding is the change was not made by the technical people it was it came from the very top and by by that i mean aco president pierre fion and the president of the fia endurance commission richard mill they made the decision and said to the technical departments of the aco and the fia we're doing this come up with some rules that are going to make it closer or come up with a new BOP that's going to make yeah. it closer. But really interesting point that Jamie made there about the Cadillac because, okay, Cadillac were, was further lap down and that was the full season WEC car run by Ganassi, driven by uh, Alex Lynn, Richard Westbrook and... Uh, El Bamba. And El Bamba. Bamba. Sorry, it has been a long... <laughs> it has been yeah. a long, uh, a long yes, yeah. two weeks almost. Uh but the quicker car was the second Ganassi car. The IMSA car, the, the team that is entered full-time in the IMSA Sports Car Championship over in North America, and that was Sebastian Bourdais, uh, Renga van der Zander, and Scott Dixon. That was the quicker car. And if you look at the averages, it was consistently quicker than the wet, the wet car. Uh, unfortunately, it had mm. a series of delays. It was punted up the rear. It uh, Dixon had a spin and they had to change the nose. So they had, when it was punted up the rear, they had to change the back end. It had another ding with a, with an LMP2 car. There was a penalty as well. So it had, had the lion's share of, of the Ganassi team's, um, problems. I think it could have been very, very close to the top two had it had the kind of, uh, had, had a clean run. Now, what we should say about the, the full season car with, Oh, Bamba, sorry, Oh, for, for forgetting you, uh, <laughs> Alex, Alex Lynn and Richard uh, Westbrook. Is it had Westbrook. A, Westbrook had a um, had a uh, oil consumption problem. So pretty much from quite early in the race, they were having to put a little dump here, dump of oil in at every pit stop. Uh, and you know, if you add added the delay, 
uh, every stop. Sometimes it was three seconds, sometimes it was five seconds. But one pit stop, I noticed it was like a one minute 45 when a full service with fuel and tyres, no oil, should be sort of 122, 123 or something like that. So that was a 20 second delay. So they were, they lost a significant amount of time. Well, I, and then because of the oil problem, they weren't really in attack mode, probably f- for the final third of the race. So that car could have been closer, but I still don't think it was the quickest, the quickest of the Cadillacs. So yeah, I, I think that's an intriguing question, whether, uh, they, they could have actually uh, mounted a challenge. And I, I, I don't think we we can say that they wouldn't have been able to. I really think, yeah, I really think the caddy could have could have put put the top, put Ferrari and Toyota under pressure. And just, just to point out, the caddy got 11 kilos um, in the BOP change added to its minimum weight because caddy, caddy was very much sort of third in the pecking order over the, over the first three races. Goodness me, I wanted to try and do this in less than an hour. And we haven't covered off the other class winners. Jamie, fill us in on this plucky Polish team that only went and won LMP2. Yeah, so into Europol competition, of course, it's uh, it, it, it's one of the smallest teams in LMP2. You know, we were talking about this going into the race. You know, you sort of have your grandee teams that are always up there. United Autosports, WRT, Jota this year, of course, only had one car in LMP2 because they had... Uh, They'd transferred the, their second entry to the hypercar class with the customer Porsche. Um, Inter Europol had only been on the podium once um, in the WEC, and that was the very most previous race at, at Spa. So, you know, they are real underdogs in, in that LMP2 class. Um, and I think that the sort of the big uh, thing that made them even more an underdog as the race went on was the fact that one of their drivers, Fabio Shearer, had his foot run over during a pit stop. It was run over by the, the Corvette. Which we're going to talk about in a minute. <laughs> well, yeah, nice, nicely linked there. Um, sort of podcaster's dream, isn't it? To sort of gracefully go from one class oh, to the perfect. other. Um, but yeah, just uh, so on Shearer, I mean, uh, I, I did have the chance to have a brief word with him during the race sometime after this incident had happened. Um, so this was quite late at night. And, uh, you know, we, we spoke to him about it and, and, and he said, well, you can go to the medical centre then. And he said, no, because I don't want to know if it's broken or not. I, I, I want to put that out of my mind as much as possible and win this race. Because if I go to the medical centre, well, A, he might have been ruled out by the doctors. Uh, uh, he would have been, I think, if yeah. if it had been broken, they'd have said, uh-uh. Yeah. Sorry, you're not getting well, back in the, the car, thing. sunshine. You know. Yeah. So into Europol, I think, put out something last night as we're recording, saying that Shearer did fracture his foot in, in the incident. And it was, you know, his foot was hugely swollen. He was not able to get his boot back on for about 15 minutes at that time, I was I was told, during the last time he got in the car. Um, but he just soldiered on, which is just amazing. I mean, a real old school tale of just endurance. I mean, we talk about, you know, endurance of the cars, but also, you know, we have to consider the human element. And for Shearer to just break through the pain barrier, I mean, his pace was hardly affected. I mean, that was the most incredible thing about it. If you didn't, if the team hadn't told us, mid-race that this had happened we would none of us would have known until after the race well we would so I think because that's what he was he was hopping into the car but anyway so the car shared by <laughs> Shearer Albert Costa also a name that's you know very little WEC experience he's been racing Lamborghini GTs for the last few years uh and and Kuba Schmikowski who I think has a background in Porsche Super Cup and things so you know, a lineup on paper that's that's maybe not, you know, compared to some of the lineups in the class, as well as the team, is not one of the you wouldn't have called them a favourite. 
you probably wouldn't have even called them a contender, you know, before the race had started. So for them to do what they did, beating Team WRT with the, the lineup of Louis Delatraz, Robert Kubica, Rui Andrade, um, you know, of course, Delatraz and Kubica were both part of the effort that fell uh, heartbreakingly short in 21 with the with the late problem, last lap problem, I think it was. And then also they were both in the Prima car that finished second last year. So second three years in a row for those guys must be hard to deal with. But I, I did notice how James Newbold in his conversation after the race with Robert Kubica said, well, I can't be too disappointed that a Polish team or that we lost to a Polish team because how often does that happen in international? Yes. And a Polish team that's based yeah. at a bakery. Uh, yes. No way. <laughs> the company, that's, that's, yeah. the, um, I don't know what actually the bakery company uh, is called, but it's involves the word words into Europol uh, and, it, and it makes cakes and stuff like that. And the team is based there. It used to be based just in Germany, but with a lot of Dutch uh, crew, but it moved three years ago, I think, to Poland. It's always sort of raced under the Polish flag. So I, I quite like that, that A, it's a it's a, a team from somewhere different, somewhere with sort of, you know, not a ingrained motorsport heritage. And I like the fact that it's uh, based in a bakery. And that one of his drivers had a, a broken foot. I saw the, the where he was running, running, hopping to, I'm presuming his wife or partner at the end to give somebody a, a massive hug. And you're like, how is he still on that? I guess adrenaline kicks in um, and the, you know, the body is incredible, but he is definitely going to be in a bit of pain right now. And let's segue that into uh, the GTE class gary you mentioned the pace of the corvette all the way through until the last few hours we saw the iron dames team putting up a really good fight but uh, quick corvette and uh, quick aston martin uh, sort of eventually uh, winning the day but yeah a quick mention for for that class that you were following this is the last appearance for corvette racing a team that first came to le mans back in 2000 has been every year since bar one year in in uh, 2020 the covid year uh has multiple class victories you know a lot of success at Le Mans but also over in America too the team cannot race in the new class next year LMGT3 uh because sort of factory teams are are not allowed uh, there's a sort of, yeah, when those new rules come in, it's very much aimed at customers. So this was their last chance. They come uh, with uh, Ben Keating, who is the sort of the, the amateur in the car and the guy who who's funding it, uh, a sort of, you know, a fast talking American, but a bloody good amateur driver. Then Nicky Katzberg, mm. uh, who, who we know a lot about, a driver with, uh, you know, Formula uh, former uh, BMW factory driver, you know, done a lot with Chevrolet, won the Spa 24 Hours, uh, and then the silver, uh, Nico Verone. They came back from two laps down. They got a bit unlucky. They should have got a lap back earlier under this new safety car uh, thing, but they didn't uh, because it looks like there was a bit of a sort of a glitch in the way the procedures were run. But they came back. They won the race. A great story. And I, and I think it's brilliant that Corvette, you know, Corvette Racing have signed off. Of course, we will see Corvettes back 
uh, next year with their new GT3 car, but uh, it won't be Corvette racing. Yeah, I think as Gaz said, it was it was the only outcome that would have I think left the the cockles of sports car fans that have been at Le Mans for the last twenty years warmed. I think it's a it's a real shame we won't see Corvette racing back next year because they have just been such a, a you know part of the fabric of the race. I mean. I started following them on in the early 2000s and, you know, the bright yellow, I think there were C5Rs in those days, caught your eye. And uh, it's hard to imagine, okay, we had the COVID race, but we knew they would be back, but it's hard to imagine no more Corvette racing at Le Mans. So for them to get the the final win for GTE cars, of course, Ben Keating, American driver, he said it was his dream to hear the American anthem on the podium, uh, which he finally got to because, of course, last year he won it uh, in a TF Sport Aston. Which so the British anthem played, and then when he did win it in his own car, the Ford, uh, he got thrown out the next day. So uh, <laughs> as of the time of recording, there were no no disqualifications or anything like that. So and just a word for Nico Barone as well. I think a, a name that not many of us had re- really knew much about before he was picked to be the silver driver in Corvette. He actually came away with the quickest lap of any GTM driver, despite being a silver. And I know that. Obviously, some drivers might have been in the car during, you know, difficult periods of the race with rain and conditions or whatever. So it's not like we can say, oh, he was the quickest driver of everybody. But I just think the fact that he put in a better lap than than anybody else in the GTE. Um, well, better than Nicky Katzberg, you know, who, well, who yeah, exactly. I, I, I rate big time, you know. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So for him to come, you know, with his background, you know, race in Argentina for a few years, he did BRDC Formula 3 with not a whole lot of success. Um, switched to sports cars uh, full-time, I think only as recently as uh, 21, um, doing LMP3 in, in the Michelin Le Mans Cup, which is the series that sits below the LMS. So for him to, to come through and, and put that performance, I mean, he was integral to, to Corvette, I think, coming back from its early woes because if they had a lesser performing silver driver okay they might have still come back but it it would have been a lot harder i i i I don't think i think i don't think you know yeah i think you're absolutely right it's key that they had a silver driver performing at sort of professional level level. was 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 key that's not to say that if if we look at uh the iron dames uh in the porsche you know uh michelle gatting is the actually generally the quickest driver there but anyway keating as gaz mentioned he's he's almost on the pace of the top pros if you look at the the list of of best times he's ahead of of many of the silver sorry many of the gold rated drivers as well as as well as uh silvers and of course all the bronzes so uh i think uh when when you consider the ingredients they had of course they had that early drama if it hadn't been for that i mean they'd have just walked away with it wouldn't they they wouldn't nobody Mm. would have would have Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. That was a fun conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for your thank you for joining us on the podcast today. A quick mention, by the way, because it has had its uh, outsized fair share of attention in the innovation class. That's the NASCAR and the Camaro that was running. That did, I think, at one point was running twenty eighth overall. Finished thirty ninth. Overall, it did stop for some brake work on the brakes and maybe a gearbox rebuild. But yeah, that NASCAR did acquit itself exceptionally well and and more as well. I thought, uh, for given how much the media were talking about it, and maybe British media as well, because Jensen Button, one of the drivers, um, it, it, it received surprisingly little coverage on the live feed, if that makes sense. The director really didn't 
focus on it. It wasn't, it, we didn't even see anything of it actually in, in the live coverage, but still great to see that NASCAR uh, over here. They were delighted with the coverage and, um, you know, obviously heavily modified headlights for a start, uh, paddle shift and more. But um, yeah, that was, that was worth a quick mention at the end. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. If you enjoyed uh, all of our coverage, then you can read a lot more online right now at autosport.com and indeed motorsport.com as well, our sister site. And if you'd like all of this dropping through your letterbox every Thursday with Autosport magazine, you can subscribe online via the website. You get digital access and the magazine. And if you're already a subscriber, by the way, then thank you very much for your support. It allows us to do work like this. Thank you for listening to the podcast and we'll catch you on the next one. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.